All right, guys, uh, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Exodus right at the beginning of the Bible. It's the second book. Um, I'm super jacked for this. This is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, and it's also, uh, it, it's a really important book because the, the Exodus is the central redemptive event of the Old Testament. What Jesus is in the New Testament the, 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 the event of the Exodus, God bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt, is to the old. You'll, you'll find the most references to any event in the Old Testament is to the Exodus. It is absolutely uh, central. So let's pray before we begin. Lord God, I pray that through your word you would meet us, that, that your word would be used by your spirit to locate within us where we need to be set free. We pray that it would turn us into a people that would, be, that would participate in transforming your world to set others free. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there was an old uh, TV show that they're now remaking, I saw, called Quantum Leap. Anybody remember Quantum Leap? Ashley knows Quantum Okay, Tony knows Quantum Leap. Good. Anybody else heard of it? Carlos knows Quantum Leap. Yeah, some, some of the people around my age remember Quantum Leap. So it was a huge hit back in the early 90s, early 90s, right? And it's a, very, it's a lot deeper than you think. Like sometimes pop culture things are, are way deeper. What it was is there was this scientist, I don't remember if he was a, a physicist or an engineer, but he was uh, doing a time travel experiment that goes wrong as they often do. And, um, and what happened is... He would, he, he like can't control, but he pops up in different people's bodies throughout time, and he has to right some wrong in that person's life. And, and, and one episode wraps up with, his, like with, with him starting the next episode. Did that make sense? Okay. So he'll wake up and look in the mirror. Like we see the actor, Scott Bakula, but in the mirror, he sees the body that he's in, and he'll, he'll look in, in the body, he sees a guy in a, a baseball uniform. He's like, huh. And then in another episode, he wakes up and, and he sees a guy, old guy in a judge's robes. And then he, he wakes up in another one and he, he sees a man with Down syndrome. And he says the same thing every time he looks in the mirror and it's a new episode. He says, oh boy. Because he has no idea who he is or what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to right some historical wrong in this person's life. And until he knows that person's story, he doesn't know what to do. For instance, the guy in the baseball uniform, he, he, he find, starts to find out this guy's story. And he, had, he has worked hard in the minor leagues, and he's at the end of his career, and he's sacrificed every relationship in his life to his failed baseball career. Or that, that judge was a judge in Alabama in the 1960s, and he was adjudicating a case where an African-American woman was accused of killing a white man. It was a very charged case, and, and so he has to figure out what he's supposed to do there, right some wrong. And the, the man with Down syndrome was a dock worker in the 1920s in Baltimore, and, and, and if he loses his job, he'll be institutionalized for the rest of his life. And so once he knows the story... Of that person, he knows what it is he has to do. It, it's a lot like what philosopher Alistair McIntyre said. You can't know what to do until you know what story you're a part of. 
maybe he was commenting on Quantum Leap. <laughs> we all wake up in the mirror every morning. We all wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, oh boy, right? What story am I a part of? We don't think of this often enough and, and, and frequently we believe we're in the wrong story. We take a false narrative to ourselves and we end up walking the wrong path. Some of you believe the story about yourself that what you really are is a consumer, that what you're on this planet to do is have good experiences, the funnest experiences, the most pleasurable experiences, the most interesting experiences possible. And so, so your actions follow that. You know, like you work because they make you and because it can fund your fun. And that's the whole point. Or you believe you're living the victim story, that you really haven't had much agency in your life and it's just sort of happened to you. Maybe you're believe that you're, win, that you're living the winner story, the success story, and you're a world beater, and you overcome the obstacles, and you only fail for a little bit, and you're like Kobe, you know, you come back and win next time. And, and that's a very fragile story, my friends, because the moment you experience real, actual failure, that whole thing crumbles, doesn't it? You kind of put yourself on this merciless treadmill of needing to succeed. Maybe you believe you're living the tragedy. And you're like me, and you rehearse that tragedy to protect yourself from it. You're always expecting the other shoe to drop, right? And trying to guard yourself against it. We all take false stories to ourselves. And it must be said, we don't always choose what that story is. Sometimes it's forced on us. But we take it to ourselves nonetheless. Here's the problem. If you, if you wake up in the mirror, wake up in the mirror. I said that again. Who wakes up in the mirror? Nobody. Some of you guys might be weird and wake up in the mirror like, mirror right there. I don't, don't tell me if you do. We wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we completely forget what our story is. And we, we, we go out and our actions say, I'm living the consumer story, I'm living the success story, I'm living the victim story, I'm living the tragedy, or I'm living the reject, or what have you. And we end up walking the wrong path. In Exodus chapter 1, the story of God's people is front and center, and we're going to see that God's people have forgotten their story. Look with me at the text. If you, can't, if you don't have a Bible with you, I recommend being in position to read the screen. Is everybody good? Anybody want to switchies on seats? No? Good? All right. Well, read with me Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Could you count with me in this verse how many times it says they have a lot of babies? The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Ding. They multiplied greatly. Ding. 
increased in numbers, ding, became so numerous, ding, that the land was filled with them, ding, five times. They had a lot of babies. Do you suppose that's important? Why would the writer of Exodus say that five times? Let's check it out. So is anybody going to do those first few verses where you get the list of names for devotions? Probably not. Didn't give anybody good spiritual vibes. Mmm, Zebulun, eh? Right? <laughs> Speak to me. That's a good word. Naphtali, Gad, Asher. What's it doing? It's referring back to the previous book, Genesis. This is not a new story. This is a continuation of an old one. Right? This is establishing the link between Exodus and Genesis. This is a continuation of a story. And what happens in the book of Genesis? The first thing, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. And God creates all things and he creates human beings as a special part of his creation to bear his image. That's how the story begins. But then our first parents rebel against God. And the world has fallen. And from that point out, God is working to bring back his creation, to redeem it. And that really gets going in Genesis chapter 12 to a guy named Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham. He makes a promise that includes three things. Three things are promised to Abraham. He promises to Abraham three things. The number of counting shall be three, and three shall be the number of counting. <laughs> you shall not count to two, unless you then proceed on to Monty Python. Anyway. <laughs> the holy hand grenade scene. No one's, all right. <laughs> three things. I wanted you to remember three things, if you couldn't tell. He promises him first a people, that this childless old man from him is going to come a great nation. Second, that they would have a place for themselves, the land of Canaan where Abraham lived. Third, that that people would bless all of the earth. Okay? And the, the book of Genesis closes with Abraham having 70 descendants, not bad, but they leave the land of Canaan, right? So at the end of Genesis, how's the promise doing? Has some kids, but they're not even in Canaan. And then we pick up here. Why? Why in verse 7 are we told how many kids they have? Because God is beginning to fulfill that promise to Abraham. What was the first thing? That he would have a great nation. And the, the point that's being made here is that the story isn't over. God is still continuing the story, but as time goes by, the story is forgotten. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. So Joseph was one of the descendants of Abraham, who was a uh, very important figure in Egypt. But a new pharaoh comes. Some people theorize... Anyway, I'm not going there. Uh, <laughs> A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, 
fight against us and leave the country. So this new Pharaoh is looking at the land of Goshen where the Israelites dwell. They've become this great people and seeing an enemy within. These foreign folk are a threat. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So how is this a solution to the problem of this huge population that Pharaoh sees as a threat? Well, Pithom and Ramses are, we know where these places are actually. They're far away from the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. So you take the men and you force them into hard labor First of all, they're tired, may not want to make babies. Second of all, they're away from their wives. But look at this in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So like, again, God's activity here is mainly people getting pregnant right? Like that is, that is what God is up to. And so whatever home visits they have, every kick was going in the goal, if you know what I'm saying, right? (laughs) So then they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So the good news is that the promise is being fulfilled and Abraham's descendants have become a great nation. The bad news is they are, they are being viewed as a threat by the most powerful man on earth and he begins to oppress them because he's forgotten the story. He's forgotten about Joseph, right? He's forgotten how someone from this people actually delivered Egypt from starvation. Not only that, I want you guys just to hang out with me for a second here and think, God's people have forgotten their story. Where do we see that in the text? You're going to have to look with me here. So how many verses are we in so far? 15. Very good. Yeah, we're in 15 verses. Has God been mentioned? Not at all. He's been implied. All right, so God... We, we see God mentioned at the end of chapter 1, but you know what we don't see? We don't see the divine name, Yahweh, until midway through chapter 3. We even see that at the, at the, end, of, uh, at the end of chapter 2, the people cry out, but it doesn't say they cry out to God. As a basis of comparison, the first verse of Genesis is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is early and often in Genesis. In the book of Leviticus, first word is Yahweh. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, or book of Numbers rather, first verse, Yahweh. In uh, Deuteronomy, I believe it's the fourth verse, Yahweh. In the book of Joshua, within the first five verses, the name of God appears. Here, not until partway through the third chapter. Not only has Pharaoh forgotten the story, God's people have forgotten their own story. And part of, what, part of what drives this out of them, part of what makes them forget is this bitter and harsh oppression that they're suffering. We're going to see later on that one of the reasons when, when they start hearing about God, when they start hearing God's promises, they don't believe them because of their harsh oppression. 
and slavery. But we see that there's hope. We see that the story isn't over. First of all, not everyone is forgotten. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. Remember them, Shipra and Pua, if you want to name your own kids that. That's a... Uh... What? There's nothing funny about that. These are heroes or heroines. He says, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. All right, so Pharaoh comes up. He sees the, that the, the slavery plan isn't working so good, so he comes up with sort of a, a pseudo-genocide plan. Good luck translating that, sorry. The midwives, however feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Okay, paint this picture real quick. Sometimes the Bible doesn't get it, give us a whole lot of details. So you got to use your imagination. Who are these women? They are Israelites themselves and they're midwives. Do you suppose that that's a very powerful position in Egyptian society to be a woman and a Hebrew midwife? They are not. Who's Pharaoh, on the other hand? Pharaoh is not just the king of Egypt. He's a semi-divine being in the eyes of the Egyptians. There, were no, there was no concept of human rights. There was no constitution. There were no laws binding him. If he says, Carlos dies, Carlos will die. All right? So you're in the audience chamber of Pharaoh. Try and imagine this. These things were built to intimidate. Carlos, don't take that personally. <laughs> all right? So he's on the throne. There's all of these people in there in this incredibly amazing clothes. And then the pharaoh has on the big snake headdress. The, the walls are engraved with all of the exploits of Egypt. The ceiling soars, right? You're intimidated by this room. And oh, yeah. He's surrounded by a palace guard of trained killers who will cut your throat soon as look at you, all right? That's who these women are standing before. But they fear God more. So when Pharaoh says, why have you let them live? You got it just the absolute backbone of these women. It says, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> Guys, I love what's in the Bible. It's just so great. Like, they're like, Pharaoh, here's the thing. We tried to kill these guys. We want to kill these boys. Trust us. <laughs> want to kill them. Problem is, <laughs> these Hebrew women give birth so fast because they're vigorous. So God was kind. This is the first mention of, of, of God doing something. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is setting up a confrontation. What's, what's all Pharaoh's power? Oppression and death. What do we see God do? God does one thing in this chapter. He gets people pregnant right? He has the power of life. That's what we're supposed to see here. But the, the story is not over. 
It doesn't matter that the most powerful man in the world is against this people and against this promise. It's not going to stop God. The story isn't over. And by the way, the story doesn't end in Exodus, right? We get a lot more than, uh, there's a lot more that God has done since then. Not just the kingdom of Israel and David and all that, but the coming of Jesus. And by the way, this story of redemption is still going on. And you and I are invited into it. We're, we're invited to recover our story as being part of God's creation, made in God's image, and also called to participate in redemption as God's children. That's what you and I are all called to. Now, uh, let me just take a poll real quick. So, so there are, there's a lot of, uh, if you watch like National Geographic, Time, or whatever, they'll, when they talk about the Exodus, they'll say things like there's no archaeological evidence for it. Has anybody ever heard that? Does anybody care? Should I go into this? Yes? Okay. Corey says yes. All right. So there are a bunch of skeptical scholars who say, hey, this never happened. This whole Exodus story, this isn't even intended to be history. That the writer... Uh, was writing a legend, knowingly writing a legend, in sometime in the 6th century. That it was, it was like all of this, they were in Egypt, none of this ever happened because, and, and the reasons are, is one, they reject any idea that God can do miracles, right? So that, that's part of it. And second, and this sounds much more, this sounds more scholarly, second is that the Pharaoh isn't named. You guys notice that? Just as the king of Egypt. Um, and and so so like, they're like, hey, clearly it's a legend. They don't even name the king. Right? They, they don't know the name of the king. It's just some, some legend that's been passed down. Yeah, there was a king. He oppressed our people. And then third is that there is no uh, archaeological evidence right, of the Exodus. Now, these people are far from stupid. So I, I, if you guys, should I go into this? All right, okay, great. So first of all, the, the whole idea that God can't do miracles, I, that, that's not a matter of like evidence. That's a matter of a presupposition, right? If you don't believe there's a God who can do miracles, you reject any story of God doing miracles. If you do believe that there's a God who could do miracles, it's not a stretch, right? So there's that. Second, the Pharaoh isn't named. Okay, does that mean it's legendary? I noticed there were some other names in there, right? Who, what were they? Shipra and Pua. The, the midwives get names. Also, Pithom and Ramses, cities are named, right? Like fairy tales don't start with Jenny Dickerson lived on 29th Street and worked at PSL. Right? The, that's not, it's, it's not long, long ago in a place far, far away. Right? We're getting place names and people names. The, the real reason is because they're, the writer's dissing Pharaoh, won't accord him the honor of naming him. He'll name the midwives. In fact, nobody gets named in here except the midwives. Makes sense? It's trying to dishonor, demote Pharaoh, right? It's not, not saying it's a legend. It's saying, I don't support this sort of thing because I believe in respecting whoever's president. But when, when people refuse to say Trump's name, they say 45 instead. Same idea. Okay, so what about there's no archaeological evidence of the exodus in Egypt? It's true. 
And what they're talking about is there's nothing carved in stone recording the Exodus. All right. Let me ask you a question. What do you carve in stone? What, the, what they call stellies. What do you carve in stone if you're ancient Egypt? So let me put it a different way. If we go to the Staples Center where the Lakers play, what banners are on the ceiling? Championships, that's it. Did they record a year? Do you see like 2023 where they don't make the playoffs? You're going to hang a banner to that? No, you don't record that. Why? Because that's not the sort of thing you put up there. What did ancient Egyptian kings, and this was true throughout the ancient Near East, what did they record in stone? Victories, big victories. You walk around England in Trafalgar Square, you're not going to see any battles they lost to Napoleon, right? Only the ones they won. That's what you build monuments to. Okay, so well, what about like non-stone records, like clay or, or written down things? Did you guys know that for the entire second millennium BC in Egypt, we only have two, uh, one clay and one papyrus. Like there are virtually no, these are not the sorts of things that survive, okay? Um, also, it is really unlikely that, that the, the official records would record such a humiliating defeat. What we do know, what we do know is that there was certainly a people called the Israelites living in Canaan in, uh, in at least 1208 BC. We know because there's a stele uh, recording a Egyptian king like defeating them. Okay? So this whole idea that there never, this, none of this ever happened. There was never even an Israel, right? Like that, that's kind of part of the theory. We know there was a people called Israel living in Canaan, uh, late 13th BC, century BC. Um, now, you have to ask, where did those people come from? You know what their story is? We were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. Guys, do you know how unlikely it is if you were going to make up a story about your origins that you would say, oh, our origins is we were slaves. If it's going to be made up, especially in the ancient world, you, if it's a made up, you'd be like, we're descended from gods, you know? You don't say, you don't make up a story that you're descended from slaves. That was, it was humiliating. Also, the whole idea, is this going on too long? You asked. You, I, I asked for your, your permission, but... Uh, but in the Old Testament, the Exodus is referred to again and again and again in the prophets, in the Psalms, like throughout the whole thing. The, these ancient people did not consider it a legend, right? Because remember, these scholars were like, they knew it was a legend. They don't think it's a legend. They see it as the founding event of their people. All that is to say, we need to remember God's story because it is our story. It is real. God is working to redeem his creation. And, and if, we, if we forget our story, if we forget what's going on, if we wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, consumer time, failure time, success time, we live a false story. We're going to live the wrong, we're going to walk the wrong path. Because what you understand your story to be it determines what you consider possible for you even. There was an um, interesting show, a, a series that PBS did 
uh, called Finding Your Roots with uh, Dr. Lewis Henry, Henry Lewis Gates uh, of Harvard. He's a historian. And what he would do is, um, you know, because of, because of the transatlantic slave trade and all that, a, a lot of African-American people cannot trace their ancestry at all. And so he uh, would do DNA testing on, on black celebrities and do extensive, he's a historian, so he did extensive historical research in, into, into people's lives. You know, he'd do like Stevie Wonder or whoever. And there was one he did with Chris Rock that, that I thought was amazing. And I love Chris Rock. Um, but he, he sits down with Chris Rock and, and he plops down the big folio. Chris, what do you think I found? And Chris Rock says, well, I think you probably found that I am descended from people who cleaned up after white people in South Carolina because that's what my family is. He says, oh, really? And so he starts flipping through this thing and he says, well, what if I told you about this guy? And he showed him one of his ancestors. His name was Julius Caesar Tingman. And he was born enslaved, but got his freedom. He enlisted as an officer in the Union Army, led his own regiment. After the war, managed to buy for himself a considerable farm and was even elected to the state legislature of South Carolina. He was a very notable guy. And as, as, as Dr. Gates is telling Chris Rock about this, you see Chris Rock starting to cry. He's like, all right, Doc, you got me. I said you weren't going to get me, but you got me. I see what you're doing. And he's like, how does this make you feel, Chris? He's like, he's like, man, if I had known about him, I wouldn't have ever gone into comedy. <laughs> and he's like, wait, what? Because Chris Rock's like the greatest comedian of his generation, probably. He's like, yeah, you understand. Like, like I stumbled on stage at an open mic night. I got lucky. I never thought that, that anything else was possible for me. But if I knew about him and that he did what he did, then I know that I could do so much more. He had forgotten his story, and, 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 and he ended up walking a different path than if he had remembered his story, if he had knew his family's story. We need to remember our story. When you look at your daydreams, when you look at how you spend your waking hours, your money, which story do they say you're living? The consumer story? Your job is to get up in the morning and have the best experiences you can have in that day, and that's it? Is it the loner story? that you're an unapproachable island of a person, that no one could know you, that no one could love you, and your actions fit it? Is it the success story that you are going to drive yourself and everyone around you into the ground so that you could live out that success story? Is it the tragedy that your job is to get up and bear it can't let these stories define us. Look, you who believe that you're some sort of like pariah reject that no one actually wants to know, you know what your, your, your actual story is? You're created by God. You bear his image. You're called by him to be a participant in his story of redemption and among his people. Don't let the false story you take to yourself stop you from living that one. The consumer story, hey, it's, it's all good, you know, like, go, go 
have a delicious cheeseburger. I can't have one because of my blood pressure. Have one for me. By all means. It's great. But to understand one's life as just a series of pleasures to be experienced is to totally miss out on what God is calling us to do. Success story. No one's going to remember anything you did. Not, none of you. I'm looking around. None. Guys, the people who get buildings named after him, Byron White, who's that? His name's on a, on a building, courthouse building. We drove by it. Do you know who he is? Do you care? You ever going to look it up? No, someone's going to look it up to prove me wrong. See, it does matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It matters to God. What you are is not the world beater. You're God's child. Laying this burden of being the world beater, of being the one who leaves the legacy, who sets the world on fire and whatnot, is going to kill you. And it's going to rob you. All of these false narratives are going to rob us of who we are meant to be in Christ. Remember God's story. God's story of creation. that We are fallen in redemption. And, and, and of redemption. What are we to be? We are to be caretakers of God's message. That's our story. We are to be children who live as God's family. That's our story. We are to be participants in the work of God's redemption. That's our story. And more and more could be said. Let's not let these false stories define us. Instead, let's remember God's story because it's our story. Please pray with me. God, help us let go of these false stories we take to ourselves. Let us remember day to day who we really are and what we're meant to do, that we would walk faithfully before you. In Jesus' name, amen.